Hello and welcome to the show Woke Up. And today we have uh, an ex-radical feminist who's an author who wrote a really nice book. And her name is Gracie West. And the name of her book is Breathing in Water. And to start the show, I, I want to just share one part of the book in chapter 12, which I think really lays out uh, a lot of the culture things that we see played out and some of the confusion. And in this book, the main character, her name is River, and she's from an urban center, but her mom has an accident and goes into a coma. And River decides to go home and take care of her mother in Oklahoma. And while uh, she adjusted back to her life in Oklahoma, she was uh, talking to an old friend of hers, a coworker, a man named Luke, and they had a good relationship. It was a hot Oklahoma day. And, uh, and River asked Luke, Hey, would you like a glass of lemonade? And he, and she was a little bit sweaty and, you know, it was hot. And he looked down at her cleavage and, and, uh, he said, sure, I, I like it. And then she turned to walk away and he gave her a slap on her backside. And then she was highly offended being from the urban center and he, him being a country boy from Oklahoma, realized he shouldn't have done that. You know, it was inappropriate to unwanted touching, but he was kind of flirting. And and then she just said to him, horrified that that was uh, where she comes from, that's assault. And then he felt horrified because he was being accused of assaulting her because that wasn't assault from his w world. And then uh there was a, another woman whose name was Penny Stone, who was a mutual friend. And then Luke, in his defense, said, well, what would Penny Stone say about this? And Penny Stone was a, a person in Oklahoma who was brutalized and raped and was really a victim of a, of a horrific crime, who was a mutual uh, friend of theirs. And then it was the, the tension in the culture war of the definition of words. And then Penny, or I'm sorry, River felt uh, uh, bad because... Her friend was really brutalized, but what Luke did was inappropriate, and everyone can recognize that, but it didn't rise to the level. And so in this culture where uh, silence is violence and words are violent and the definition of PTSD has been watered down, uh, I really like that tension. And so what I'd like to do with Gracie is, Gracie, you take over now, and I'd like you to share your path and your story and maybe discuss a little bit about the culture and what's going on with the words and the, the feminist movement as a whole. And uh, welcome to the show, Gracie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, appreciate the opportunity to talk to any audience, really, just um, about these things. Like you said, my characters um, that I wrote in my fiction novel, I really use those characters to kind of work out my own thoughts on issues that I had these two voices in my head that were kind of arguing with each other. And so I put them into real life characters that had real life experiences and conflicts and like tried to figure out, you know, who was right on what topic. And so I, <laughs> that's what my book is really about. And it was my own personal journey of my imaginary friends having discussions because at the time, you know, people weren't really having discussions. I'm not sure if they are anymore. I'm kind of focused on raising my kids right now. But, you know, at the time, people didn't have conversations. They had name calling episodes on social media. And I'm pretty sure that's probably still happening. And so I wanted to have more meaningful real life kind of scenarios of what would happen if these two people got into a particular situation or conversation. So, but yeah, you know, you asked sort of my journey and, um, you know, I would say that I was a, a pretty strong, I don't know if radical is the right word, because I studied all of these de definitions in college. And I actually got a women's studies degree. My bachelor's degree was women's studies. And so I would say I was a little bit more of a liberal feminist, but radical in the sense, average person would call me right. Radical feminists historically would be people who advocated that, well, historically, not these days, would be advocating that women only really had sexual relationships with women and um, leave the guys out because it's the patriarchy. I mean, they had some radical views back in the 70s. And so as that's more, you know, I think it's more like there is no such thing as women. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's where that's heading. But yes, yeah, so I was pretty dedicated and mostly because I had, I'm really empathetic and I care about people who are down and out. I care about justice and I care about the little guy. And so I, I did women's studies as a sort of investigation of what's going on with this topic gender, partly because I was raised in, well, I was raised in a conservative Christian house, evangelical, and well, more Baptist evangelical. My mom was a stay-at-home mom with five kids, and I really didn't want her life for a, a number of reasons. But she she advocated for this what seemed backwards way of life, and it seemed I think it seemed backwards because I went to public school and I got this other messaging. I think you know the the education system is is it's been kind of 
left-leaning for many decades. And it really kind of gave this, this feeling of those types of people are not valuable to society. You know, the kind of person who stays and raises their kids, stays home, right? So it didn't look good to me. And when I got into college, I started, I, I think I took an elective or something and it was women's studies. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. You know, they told me really interesting things and really good, important things to know. Like, you know, women got the vote in 1920, how they got the vote, you know, all these great heroines that worked hard to get me access to public life. And I think that seemed really amazing. And um, and so I thought, I'm going to switch my major from nutrition, which I wanted to be a dietitian, help people with making good choices for their food when they were having health issues, basically like work in a hospital. But I switched my major over to women's studies, which ironically left me careerless as a female in the sense that it my degree didn't help my career. Let's just put it that way. But it gave me a lot of stranger and stranger information as I went. It wasn't just this historical, interesting knowledge. Look what happened. And I thought, wow, there's a whole degree of women's studies. Like this must be big. You know, maybe we're going to read literature that has been written by women and the greats and stuff and all this. Well, no, it, it was different than that. Looking back on it, it was is very disappointing. Like, for example, I took a class called Women in Islam. And I kind of assumed that like it did with Christianity, when I took a feminist theology class, it really tore it down and broke it apart and told me how, you know, the Father God and the Trinity is very patriarchal, etc. So I read all these tomes talking about that. It didn't make me lose my faith, but it made me think, you know, maybe they're right. So but even if they're right, you know, I still maintain this trust in my original faith, I think. But anyway, then I take this women in Islam class, and it was telling me that we should just celebrate all of these women in Islam but I was thinking, well, what about, which is fine, but like, what about some real big issues like genital mutilation or things that happen in Muslim communities to women, maybe? I don't, I assumed that we'd talk or think about those things. And actually the book addressed it that we were reading and it said, just leave it alone, Western women, don't even look into it. Don't talk about it. It's none of your business. And I was like, okay, on behalf of women everywhere, I'm pretty sure that's horrific. So I know you're not supposed to speak on behalf of women everywhere, but that was kind of a big question mark to me. And I you know now looking, I still agree. You shouldn't be able to speak on behalf of women everywhere. But there's certain things like certain human rights that you just think everybody should speak about. It doesn't matter who you are. What I, I, just, I just want to add really quick. I was just in Egypt and uh, I was there a couple months ago. And one of the things I learned in Egypt, 93% of the females are have had genital mutilation in Egypt. I mean, that's a it's a massive stat. So that's that's going on in certain countries of the world. That it's probably mm -hmm. part of the culture. Yeah. So, you know, it's like we could think through it in a little bit more of an intelligent way than just say, shut up, you know, and because I don't know, it just seems like it's important. So there were things like that in my degree that seemed like they were very closed off to discussion or diversity of thought. They were very closed off to mm -hmm. even a multitude of, of feminisms. Like it was, it was like, there's always a prevailing feminism and uh, it would be more on the radical side. And so the, the degree was very focused on training me to believe that gender was a, a continuum. So there isn't just gender isn't just male. Well, not gender. They use the, so they use the word sex and gender differently, or they did. See, I it's been I've been out twenty years, and I know things have changed because when I was in college, the word cis was not a thing. It didn't exist. So it's a new thing. So anyway, it could be different. But when I was there, it was like male and female are not the only categories for gender. And there's this entire sliding scale of male, female based on your hormones, your um, interests, your personality, whatever. So you could be a female with your chromosomes, but you could be sort of gendered more boyish, like we would call it a tomboy, right? So there was this idea, they were really trying to push this idea that the gender wasn't binary. Well, of course, if you look at it with scientific stats, if you look at the percentage of people who are male or female, and I mean, I'm talking chromosomally, because they also told you there's intersex people, which we used to call hermaphrodites. So there's people who their genetics are mutated in such a way, and they would not use the word mutated. But if you want to talk like a scientist, you would say they have mutated in a different way to be more than just XY or XX. They would be maybe XXO. Um, there's actually an interesting number of different things, but they're so rare. And they also, uh, comparatively, so statistically, these, these mutations are actually pretty rare, but they're also, they come with other health issues. And so, you know, it's like, <laughs> I understand the idea of tolerance, and I understand the idea of making a space in society for everybody to participate. 
period. I get that. What I didn't understand was people saying, you need to celebrate this. And it made me wonder because I have a nephew who's extremely, he's extremely disabled. He has a chromosomal, well, mutation of some other kind. And and he can't hear and he can't speak and he can't walk. And he's, he's actually expected to pass before he's 30. And that's really tragic. He's the sweetest human on earth. He can hear a little bit because he has a cochlear implant. And so he can talk a little bit, but just so precious, loves life, laughs all the time. We have so much fun, but his experience in life is pretty tragic in the sense that he hits his head a lot when he tries to crawl. He's nine. He hits his head on things really badly and it's tragic. And I don't want to celebrate that. I don't want to celebrate the fact that he can't hear or walk and all of these things. I, I want to celebrate him as a person who has value because they are made in, he's in, made in the image of God. But like, there were things like that, that just, you had to just believe it. You couldn't question it. You couldn't ask questions because if you did, you were told that your privilege is speaking and my privilege would be white. Maybe even my priv- privilege would be straight and Christian. So there was this intersectionality of people, you know, they, they chop you up into all these categories and they decide based on these categories, exactly how oppressed you have been or are in the world. You know, I just shut up and listen, which is what they basically say to do. I came across a quote that seems relevant actually today. It, it said, I would rather, let me see if I can read it because I might get it wrong. But So this was 20 years ago. This was creeping in, this uh, ideology was creeping into the university system when you were a student, right? Oh, yes. And I, I would say creeping might be the right word because it wasn't prevalent in gra- grade school or middle school, but it was definitely being taught in universities and it, you could do an entire degree with it. Okay, here's the quote I read today that seems kind of relevant. It says, I would rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. And then this quote is attributed to Richard Feynman. Feynman. So I've come to land there. You know, I've come to land where it's okay to have questions about things and not be able to answer it right away. I mean, it's a lifelong journey sometimes to answer certain questions. But what I didn't like ultimately after I had been sort of persuaded to just swallow the ideology unquestioning and be an ally to those who are more oppressed Mm. than I am. And, you know, I, like I said, I care about people. I value them. I did it from a good heart. And, and I think some of the things I did were really good. Like they make a lot of good points. For example, you know, someone who has multiple barriers in life, they have it harder sometimes. And it's true, right? What I've come to sort of think about later in life is these truths are solved differently from intersectional feminist perspectives than they are from other perspectives. And so I started to watch the way in which that these intersectional feminist ideas and those who support them, I started to watch the ways in which actually they were very damaging in society and not uplifting. They weren't bringing life, you know, they weren't keeping families together and happy. They were really kind of destroying, intentionally destroying the family. Actually, they would, they would talk about this one actually disturbed me back in the day. I couldn't say anything, of course, but I was like, wait, what you want to destroy the nuclear family? That seems really destructive, but it also seemed like it was unnecessary. So they have this zero sum game, like life is a zero sum game. So it's either you're winning or I'm winning. Not everybody can win. And this is sort of the equity game that's being played so that the word equality, which was big during the 70s and that maybe even the 80s, the intersectional feminism was sort of born in the 80s, but it really gained steam in academia, I would say in the 90s and and the 2K. So, and of course, once it gains steam in academia, it sort of trickles down through all of of education. And that's what we're seeing play out now in education. If you want to talk about that at some point, we could talk about parents' rights versus teacher control over your child, etc. But what what I'm trying to say on this point is, you know, this idea that that intersectional feminist feminism was supposed to help bring awareness to the ways in which people can struggle in multiple ways. And yet it seemed like the way that it, the solution was playing out was actually causing more damage than it was helping. You know, it was supposed to help people who were queer as they, they celebrate that word queer used to be a derogatory term, right? For weird or something. And so they've reclaimed that word, which is great. Use, you know, reclaim words, that's fine. But it ended up being like, we're going to force you not to tolerate, not to make a place in society, but celebrate. And if you don't, bad things will happen. And I was like, I did not sign up for this. I did not sign up for 
totalitarian, you know, arm twisting kind of bend your knee to my ideology or else. And I, and I just had to bow out because I think, I think I started to see the ways in which it was really damaging. Were you seeing uh, the world then uh, through the lens of power dynamics, the pressure oppressed, you know, was that mm-hmm. drumbeat into you? And was it like, was that affecting your worldview and relationships the way? Oh, you went- totally. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, all I could see was racism and sexism and all the ism, like you're, you're really, they, they actually say this, they, they say, we're giving you a lens to look through and it's the feminist lens and here's what everything looks like. And once you put that on, sure enough, everything looks, it's like, everything does look racist and sexist. And, but when you take those lenses off, you realize life is a lot more complicated than that. It's not so black and white. It's actually, you know, what, what might seem like a slight to me because of my, my gender might actually just be somebody being just for whatever reason, inconsiderate, having nothing to do with gender. And I was less concerned about me though, and more concerned about everybody else, because I was told I was pretty low on the totem pole. So I was really doing a lot more advocating for all of these other groups as if I knew what was best for them. And I needed to like, educate society on this. They call it ally. And it's actually looking back, I feel like it's it's actually kind of a, a nice word, but it doesn't play out that way. It plays out more like shut up and take directions because you're not going to tell anybody any original thought. You're going to repeat the mantra and say the magic words. And if you don't, you're not an ally, which means you're not a good person. You don't care about the oppressed. You don't care about the least of these as Christ is the Christians would talk about it as the least of these. They would talk about it as the oppressed. So, you know, as a, as a Christian, it's like, well, I care about the least of these. And Jesus actually said, if you, whatever you do to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And so that that's a powerful concept. And so you really, but if you're put in a position where it's like, you don't get to decide anything about what you truly, what your conscience is or what your convictions are, you don't get to decide. It. It's just given to you. And it's like, I just felt like it was suffocating and I wasn't being a free thinker at some point. One of the ways I, I look at, uh, in particular, what we categorize as critical social justice or the or wokeism, uh, every, it's very clear once you once you grab it, you see it, whether it's, uh, you know, ableism or or. LGBTQ, the emphasis on the on queer or race theories or feminist theory. It's all the same garbage. It's a Marxist way to look at the world and everything is oppressor oppressed and we must be on the side of the oppressed. And so even hypothetically in the, in the, in the emphasis on the queer, you are, everybody in the world now is either one or the other. You are either a queer or an ally or you're a bigot. There's no nuance. There's no other way to look at the world. And it's the same thing with the, the, the CRT and the emphasis on on race is is you're either an anti-racist or you're a bigot. And there's no other end of discussion. Like I was talking to one person, they said to me, uh, you got to come to terms with your racism. You need to investigate the depth of your racism. And, and you know, obviously racism used to be one definition. Now it's this, uh, systems of oppression. Okay, so begin to look at that. And I was instructed, don't talk to any minority about it because you'll cause them to relive trauma. And so you have to have to do the work and do it on your own. And I, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, that is like the stupidest pedagogy I've ever heard in my life that you can't even question. You just have to submit and accept. I mean, your epistemology of like how you acquire knowledge and, you know, how you learn things. If you just have to sit in a room and take it and confess your sins of being a homophobe, transphobe, ableist, whatever it is. And that's the way you learn. And that, that's going to add to a better society. To me, that's absolutely insanity. I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, what do you think well, of that? Well, you have to first, you have to accept the premise um, that there is this hierarchy of oppressed. You have to accept that there is certain people who are higher up on the hierarchy than you are with being oppressed. So you have to accept that to really understand. (laughs) And once you accept that, the whole philosophy makes sense of why you should do what you should do. But you know, what you just said about that, that feeling of like, just obey kind of, it it is a bit of an authoritative, authoritarian type of almost like a parenting style where you, you know, your kid goes, well, why? And the parent goes, because I said so. Right. And so the, the, because I said so is authority, it appeals to authority. It's an argument that appeals to authority. And so the question is, you have well, you have to ad- accept that these people are your authority first. And so, you know, as much as they say we don't like hierarchy the- and power, the truth is that I was experiencing at some point in my 40s when I realized, look, they say they don't think they, s- well, we, we say, because at that time I was part of it, 
Like we say, we don't want hierarchy. We say we don't want power structures, but we're creating one of our own by saying these people have a stronger voice. These people have a right to speak because of these various things. And that should be authoritative in and of itself. And I'm like, but isn't that a power structure of authority? And so then there were other, yeah. And so there were these other kind of things that I felt like were really contradictive. And I thought, you know, I'm the type of person who actually means well, I'm not in this for the narcissism. I'm not in it for like, just obey and submit, you know, I'm more like, I actually want good things for the world. So when I realized this is not actually good for the world, because it's contradicting itself when it's, it's almost So in terms of a pedagogy, it seems like a pretty bad model to say there's a certain authority figure. And as long as they say that you're going to believe something to be a good person, then you are. Instead of saying each individual is valued for their own sake and valued equally. And that's a word that isn't very popular anymore. And that's because the word equality has actually been swapped out for equity. And it's kind of a sleight of hand. You know, nobody has paid that close of attention to the language. It sounds very similar. But equity is kind of a zero-sum game where some people are going to have to pay now because they privileged earlier. Or some people should be privileged now because they paid earlier. And so you have to really believe that's true. You have to really say it's okay if people suffer You know, you have to actually say it's okay to judge people based on their skin. You have to be able to say it's okay to judge people based on sex, ability, etc. So, you know, when they say we don't really like people judging by their, you know, it's judging by sex, race, etc. That's not true. They do. They just think certain people should be judged and not others. And that's where privilege comes in. And so it's very convenient to define words differently. So you have to define things differently to get people to sign up for it. Because if the definition of racism is judging people negatively based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity or something in that department, if that's the definition of racism, then to adopt this worldview or to be a social justice warrior, you are racist. So they have to change the definitions of these words to make it palatable for people who actually mean well, you see? Yeah, that's an excellent insight. You know, you know the other thing that I noticed about this uh, mindset is if you really look at the the founders, and I think uh, a lot of these people like Derek Bell with Critical Race Theory and Bell oh, Hooks. Bell Hook, okay, yeah. Bell Hooks. I read her book and I really liked it. It was it, it's all about love, and she was talking about racism, and and uh, she was one of the most influential on feminist theory. But it seems like what they write, they just bring out good points. And even uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Mapping the Margins, where she introduces intersectionality, kind of like what you're saying. Yeah, there's things to look at. There's things here that might be needing to be adjusted, but there's this like ideology that creeps in and co-ops it and takes mm-hmm. over and forces something other than just a debate, a conversation. Maybe, maybe we should look at what Bell Hooks was writing about and look at what Derek Bell was writing about and negotiate mm-hmm. and look for ways forward. But it, it becomes this totalitarian ideology that subjugates everything in its path mm-hmm. and there's no room for discussion. And yeah. And I I see that's kind of taken over in all these aspects of our society and is really causing a a great deal of conflict, harm, disillusionment and shattering of institutions and relationships and families, you know, and it's creeping into every institution. Yeah. Yeah. And it is missional in nature. It's, and like I said, it's a sleight of hand. So if you were to say, based on your definitions, we are doing justice. It's like, great. You know, you go into a corporation and you're like, look, we see that there's some problems with your statistics and it looks pretty racist or whatever. And people are like, what? Oh, well, come on in and do an assessment. We don't want racism. And that's, you know, good hearted people let, they open the door to people who are, I would say not as good hearted people who have an agenda of being authoritarian authoritarian and forcing people to think a certain way instead of opening up their minds to a conversation like what bell hooks would do or or even like the one that wrote the knapsack what was her name sandra is it harding i don't remember i, I don't i'm not familiar with her yeah so yeah the well it's where white privilege came from i think okay. this this invisible knapsack that you have to unpack and see what it is that's really privileging you and so you know these i think these were reasonable kind of points at the time they were like hey have you noticed when you go into the store and it says flesh tone it's white you know i mean there's like oh that's something i would never have thought of so there's legitimate points that they make and that yet there's almost this sort of like other thing that came in and co-opted these exactly things, I think, because 
it's almost, you know how I see it and maybe I'm wrong, but the way that I see it is almost like, well, here's why. First, let me, let me say why. When I sat in these gender studies classes, they did a lot of talking about Marx, so, uh, Karl Marx. And I thought that was odd because we'd be talking about gender and all of a sudden they were talking about Karl Marx, who I'd never read. And they would talk about his social theory and how important it is and how, you know, socialism is morally righteous, essentially, and superior. And they convinced me that this might be this probably true based on their lectures in class, even though I never had read a word of Marx. But and I thought it was a little strange at first, but then it became normal to be like, why are we talking about Marx, Karl Marx, the economic theorist, you know, and so socialism was really what you really were expected to believe in as an economic solution to some of these injustices, as opposed to capitalism. And so that was built into these women's studies programs. And it's like, looking back on it, I, I feel like because socialism has been tried many times, even though in, in college, they said it's never been tried. <laughs> that's convenient to wipe away 100 or more than 100 million deaths last century. Yeah. So come to find out, right? I learned this later in life, even though I'm, I have a master's degree. So anyway, I, what I've come to reflect on is that I think that because socialism fails repeatedly and they, you know, people try to implement it in a little slightly different way in this place versus that place, because it keeps failing, it's like they have to keep reinventing themselves or at least the idea and ideas live longer than we do, right? Yes. So we spend our life pushing an idea forward. And when we die, that idea continues to move forward without us. And so the idea that socialism is righteous gets perpetuated. And I feel like it's like, it's, I think that this, all these studies degrees, like women's, well, that used to be women's, but now it's gender because I guess women don't exist anymore or something like that. But anyway, then other things like, you know, queer studies, all the studies. So it's almost like that's a host for this parasite of socialism that kind of rides its back, like this authoritative totalitarian, like you're going to submit to our ideas or there's consequences like you see that play out with socialism all around the world. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, like you in particular, and I would say just anecdotally, I'm sure there's studies on this that overwhelmingly you see people in your uh, demographic, the way you described yourself, you uh, had a certain level of privilege. You were raised in a Christian home. You were very high on the empathy scale. You want to love people and help people and, and respect everybody. And you had enough money to go to university. And so you were given a lot. And there was something in the allure of, of this that, that attracted you. And so we see like in urban centers, kids that uh, are able to go to university or many private universities, and they want to help people. You know, we, we must honor the, the, those that the intention is to, is to help the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the ones that are hurting, the ones that are, you know, down and out. How can we be more equal and provide opportunity for everybody? And it's like an attracting bait almost, but then the hook comes in and it, and it just really messes with the ideology. I mean, that's kind of the way I see it. And I was wondering like, like, what would you say to, uh, you're now a generation older than an idealistic young girl who's just graduating high school, getting ready for university. What kind of advice would you give them in terms of avoiding the pitfalls and some of the some of the bondages, the mental bondages that uh, plagued you for for a good decade. You know, um, well, first let me correct you in saying that I wasn't privileged financially. Okay, so, thank you. Yeah, it's okay though, but it's even more shocking that I was able to be told how privileged I was, right? And, so, and, I, and I continue adding trauma to you. Sorry, I'm so traumatized. Um, no, really, I ended up working full-time and going to school at night for the first two years of college. And I did this four years after my peers went to college. And so then the last two years, my husband was working full-time and he supported me going to school full-time. And, you know, it's so oppressive, you know, being dependent on men, you know, you cannot show gratitude. You just have to be like, see, the world is so bent toward him anyway. So I'm grateful for his help. However, I look back and I think, I mean, I'm still paying it off. I'm 40. I'll be 47 soon. So I consider myself an indentured servant to an ideology that gaslit me. It, it was like, you're so privileged, be feel guilty. And I was like, okay, because I'm, pr I'm pretty <laughs> ignorant, actually, if you boil it down. 
And so now I'm still paying this debt of something that didn't give me a career. I would warn every child not to go into women's studies because talk about gaslighting. You know, they're like, come on in here. And then you come in and they're like, women don't get paid as much as men. And women are so oppressed. And you leave college and you're like, well, I am kind of oppressed by this debt. And I don't have the opportunity for a career based on the degree I got. I mean, it's so much gaslighting happens in that department or in, in this whole ideology. It's, it's truly unbelievable because, you know, even though Karl Marx actually cared about economics and the people having the control of capital and the means um, to production and all that, he it's interesting how this neo-Marxism doesn't really care much about class and it doesn't care how much you make. And it, it's like, you're still privileged because look at your skin. You know, I'm sure my skin has allowed me at age 47 to still be paying off my student loans. So anyway, it's, it's a big gaslighting. What he applied to economics has been uh, that didn't work and the middle-class prospered. And obviously the economic systems, if you compare Russia versus United States or the West compared to China during the the cultural revolution in in Mao, it just doesn't measure up. It it just can't, there's no comparison. And so it's been, uh, it's cultural Marxism. It's uh, it's instead of the oppressor and oppressed with economic, the proletariat and the bourgeois, it's white and black. It's, uh, it's male, female, it's uh, cisgender, the new invented term that you, that you highlight versus those who are queer. And so it's, it's just pitting of people and putting every human being in a box and totally stripping away the individuality of each human being that is so uniquely designed with their own DNA and their own dreams and broken dreams and individuality yeah. uh, and, and putting us all in the same, in, in these categories and then using those categories to make us hate one another and pit, pit each other against each other and tear one another down. Yes, yeah, so which that's, is demonic. Yeah, and that's what I saw that it, that really startled me was to think that this this way of thinking, as I saw it acted out in the world, was actually causing so much hatred between these classes of people based on arbitrary features. Like, what is happening? And watching real yes. lives be destroyed and watching real families be torn apart. And and it's this is why I compare it to a religious ideology. Well, yes. first, I got a master's degree in the sociology of religion. And I also studied a lot of feminism when I was there. But looking back, because I do have training on religion and so- sociology, I can see it now. And I say, okay, it is a, it's a religious movement which is why it's because it's moral in nature. It has ethics and expectations for behavior, purity codes, like who you may and may not be around if they don't agree with you. It's like, it's intense. And it's almost like a cult-like following in the sense that it does pull people away from their families and isolating them into this group that thinks like them and they're not allowed to think or they're not allowed to, not only they're not allowed to think differently, or if they are questioning something, not express that question, you get told real quick not to say that. But can you share a little bit about some of your experiences when you were silenced and you were shut up and you were like either directly or indirectly told uh, told the party line and conform to this ideology? Like, like just personally, like some of the groups that you were involved with, could anything come to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, I started to question certain things, just generally nothing terribly like, I don't even know, I can't even remember what it was. But I remember, I remember somebody saying to me, what happened to you, Gracie? You used to care about justice. And I was like, what? You know, like, what do you mean by this? Of course, I still care about justice. I was talking about this thing that I'm wondering, look at this discrepancy. And they immediately make you feel like you're outside of the bounds here. Like, you're just not even one of us. We are on the justice side and you've stepped out. What happened to you? And it's like, what happened to me was I said a simple question. Isn't this an interesting contradiction that I'm observing? And it is immediately shut down, like just you're outside the bounds. And, but she's like, well, the power thing, right? I mean, they're still up here and and we need to bring it like, and I'm like, yeah, but what about the tipping point? Like, what if it goes like this, where men are now being oppressed and like, how do we know? And well, I think in some ways it's already flipped. It's projected now by 2025, 61% of the college graduates will be female and 39 male. And you don't see men being attracted to go into the universities on the level they did before. And you know, there are differences between male and female. And I just just wanted to share that. Another question I had for you is how did you have the veils taken away? What, I mean, that's, you're pretty steeped in it. Your, your worldview is affected your relation. You have these relationships and, but something in you, it's like flipped. Like what, what happened when when you were in your early forties? Well, I was watching Brett Weinstein on the campus of Evergreen university in Washington. He's a, a liberal evolutionary biologist and 
he was being run out of campus on like they were violently a violent mob was like searching to attack him and he had gotten away off campus and here's why they were upset and i watched all these videos on youtube watching this whole thing play out live i mean real time real time pretty close to real time i think so he had well the the extremists with this ideology on campus had said we need to have a day that we're just free of whites. I'm saying it more a paraphrase because I actually don't know how it was written, but it was a letter that was proposing to the administ- administration that they have a day where whites just don't come to campus because like people just needed a break. Okay, that's well, that's that's like a big red light that's flashing saying warning, 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 like something bad is going to happen. This is not right. So anyway, so this but this man, he's Jewish. And he sees the light flashing. He's like, oh, one race is not welcome today. That's kind of creepy. I mean, it was like a solid day where whites shouldn't come. Shouldn't is the key word. They were allowed to. But this letter also said something like if they did come, they would be proving that they were not allies of all of these superior races and classes than they are. And so he thought that was very dangerous because he happens to know Jewish history. And so He wrote a letter in response saying, I'm not sure this is a great idea. Here's why I think it's excluding, you know, it's a bad idea. He he said it nicely. They showed up at his office yelling and screaming with in his face with videoing it. And he's, you know, he not office. He was actually teaching a class of biology. He was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on, you guys? Wait. And he was so disoriented. He's like, what's happening? And they're like, well, this letter and you're such a bigot and you hate people of color. He's like, whoa, what is, what is, he was so disoriented. So disoriented. He's like, I just think it's a bad idea to, but they wouldn't listen to him. And I'm watching this going, yeah, this is it. Like everything these students are saying is what they should be saying based on this ideology. Interesting. But I'm, but I'm watching it play out and it's getting violent. Like they want to hurt him. And I'm thinking something is wrong. It was starting to kind of shock me out of this hypnosis kind of thing. And so he got away. He left campus early and they were looking for him. They ended up putting the president of the university in like they had him what do you call it? Hostage, basically. Like they wouldn't let him leave. He, they didn't say they're going to hurt him, but it was pretty clear that they were an angry mob of people who were going to just freak out. Like the police, the campus police weren't let in and the local police weren't allowed to come. But it was like, because the president was saying, stand down. He was trying to, he thought he could reason. He's so cute. He thought he could reason with them. And he thought, well, I want good things for people. I'm on the side of justice. I'll be fine. No, he doesn't understand he won't be fine. He's in a position of power and he's white, period. No discussion, nothing. So they had a list of demands and they were giving it to him. And you have to do this and you have to say that and you have to be this way. You have to change school. In fact, we're going to radically change it right now. And you're going to sign the bottom line. And if you don't, you're not leaving. And I mean, you know, he started to talk and he was moving his hands like, you know, while he was talking, they're like, put your hands down, put your hands down. And like, you're being aggressive. And he's like, okay. So like, it was a seriously intense thing that I watched play out with my own eyes. And I thought, I want nothing to do with this. I want nothing to do with this. This is totalitarian violence on verge of violence. I want nothing. It just like snapped me out of my hypnosis to go, this is, I'm not on this side. What side is this? What is this? I don't even know what this is. I'm not on the side. I know that. So I started looking into what is happening. I started listening to people I disagreed with. So just to summarize that with the the evergreen conflict that you were observing, that kind of crystallized saying, I can see how this was affecting me, how this ideology was uh, taking over my worldview. And now I can see the fruit of uh, how this could actually, where this could actually take everybody. Yeah. It was like they were possessed by an idea that was bigger than they were. And they were forced to act on its behalf is what it almost looked like. It was like this, you know, mobs, they, you don't want to be in a mob because people do things they wouldn't normally do, but they were saying they were just this mouthpiece for this ideology that was so clearly laid out. I could hear it all in my I could see how we got here. I read Bell Hooks, Sandra Harding, you know, Judith Butler. I read all of it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I see how we got here now. So yeah. And then YouTube was like, oh, you like that? You know what else you'd like is to see this other bigot. His name is Jordan Peterson. So they show me this video of activists that were attacking him verbally and yelling at him because he said something that they disagreed with. And he was this bigot, right? So they were screaming in his face and they were, and he was 
saying, okay, I'm trying to explain it. And they're like yelling over him. And he, he goes, you asked me a question. Do you want to know the answer? And they said, no, it's like also <laughs> not on that side. Cause actually I kind of want to hear his answer and they wouldn't let him answer the question. So I thought, well, he probably is a bigot, but I'm going to go find out on a different video. And so I went and started list is before he became a big deal. I went and started listening to his lectures that he posted online, all of his psychology, mythology, all of this interesting stuff. And as he talked, I, I learned something about socialism and how it played out in the last century. And it just blew my mind. And suddenly I started seeing how this and this were connected. And I, it was like, it was like somebody just snapped me out of hypnosis is what it felt like. Yeah. So you remember what he said that, that impacted you so dramatically to have such a, a light yeah. bulb moment? Oh yeah. The, 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 when I learned that hundreds of millions of people last century died from socialism and communism last century, I, it was like, I felt like vomiting because I had been promoting these things. Wow. I literally, I felt like vomit. It felt like, it felt like I had been a Nazi and I didn't realize that the Holocaust had happened and somebody showed me pictures. Like that's, that's how I felt. I felt like I cannot believe somebody that I paid and I'm still paying convinced me to be a mouthpiece for the most brutally violent, destructive ideologies and social systems and economic systems and totalitarian systems. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, and how did you find uh, redemption in, in terms of like a totally different path? I, I can see coming to the, to the realization that, uh, oh my gosh, this is a mess and I'm part of it. Like what has led you out to the place of freedom, like uh, where you're at today? You know, I I had been attending a liberal church and by liberal, I mean, gay and lesbian people were welcome in membership and leadership. And now also, which I'm not going in there anymore, but now also um, trans, you name it, any queer kind of identity. And so that's what I mean by I went to a liberal church. And, and at some point I started to realize this is not church because it actually sounds a lot like my, my college classes, all the language was oppressed and marginalized, all the words, right? I'm like, this is a language they're speaking that I learned in college. It's not church per se. You know, they're not talking about the least of these. They're not doing that thing. It didn't sound like a Christian experience. In fact, the, and then I realized the people around me didn't actually believe in prayer. They didn't. We were doing this activism at church for immigration to be convincing everyone in the congregation that, it, you know, to be on this certain side of the immigration debate. And we, we were concerned about these kids that were falling off trains during the Obama administration when he had opened up the border, I think. And so kids were like falling off trains and stuff. And I said, well, let's pray for these people, you know, that are in transit. And somebody in church said, we're actually going to do something that'll make an impact. We're going to do something practical that we'll actually do, you know, and I was like, I know we're doing this, but we could also pray like they didn't believe that prayer worked. And it just that shocked me. So I was like, yeah, I, I have a lot of social justice clubs. I don't need to come to one that talks, acts like it's a church. So I left there. And when I left there, I started to kind of tap into my original faith where it was not original faith, but it was like not tainted with this other religion that had merged with it. And so I started to think about how it was different. And that really assisted me on coming out of this because I started to realize the religion that I had been given, the faith that I had been, that had been transmitted to me through my folks was valuing each individual person because they were in made in the image of God, period. It didn't matter what they looked like, talked like, how much I disagreed with them. I'm not saying that everybody in the Christian conservative world was ever nice to everybody or including everybody, but the, the truth is it had this perspective, like whether I disagree with you or not, you're valuable. And I thought that's different. And that's actually something I want to go back to because I actually, I actually believe that. And I kind of started to talk to God again for the first time. I hadn't been going to church for about a decade since I left that liberal church or something like that. And I just didn't want to go back to these conservative evangelical places because honestly, I didn't identify with the culture anymore. I didn't want to. And it was more just because it, it seemed a little bit naive to me. And anyway, but I connected with my faith in a deeper way directly with God. I started to actually pray again. I know it's like I never lost, lost my faith, but I stopped talking to God, you know, for a long time. I had something else that replaced it. But as I started to talk to God and include God in my journey and just say, God, you know what? I need you. I humbled myself and I was like, I don't know anything. And I can't believe I'm just finding this out in my 40s, but I need your help. And it's so interesting. It's like life has never been so good in so many ways. It's just the way that God has, like, I don't even know how to describe it, but I'm so happy, like so happy all the time. I wake up every day. I thank God for everything he has given me and everything he has not. I'm just, 
a different person. That's, that's beautiful. And you have two, two teenagers and what I know you out of your experiences and now your kids are getting ready, you know, going into high school and these years are going to go very quick. And uh, I don't know if they aspire to go to college or not, but what advice would you give for parents that love their kids and they want their kids to be educated, how to best prepare them for what they might be encountering? Would you say, don't go to college or do go to college, but under these conditions or what kind of advice would you give our listeners that are insecure about the future for their children that love them very much and want the best for them, but are a little bit nervous? Yeah. So first we should, we should all just acknowledge that you cannot, you cannot determine the outcome of your children's way of life. You just can't. And you try because you try to give them everything good that, you know, as a loving parent, you try to give them everything good that you can, that you think is good. You give them all of it. And then, and then at the end, you just kind of watch things play out. And I've seen a lot of people who have adult children, my in my family included, who they, they just become such different people than you had than they were even as a child or as as a teenager, but also they adopt different values than you have. And so we should just all acknowledge that that's just kind of reality, you know? And so, but what I would say is I would, what we've said to our kids is we are not going to pay for you to go to certain colleges, basically ones that have been um, fully infiltrated with an ideology that teaches you what to think, not how to think, what to think. And so we will pay for you to go to universities that don't do that. And we'll have to search hard for those. And we've found a few. Um, The ones that basically come out and explicitly say, this is a free thinking university. We will not bend the knee to anybody's particular ideology telling us what to do and say and think. It's like, okay, you can go there. Yeah, that's Um, a good base point right there. We'll start with that. Yeah. And, and so I would say that, but I would say to the average, see, I'm not the average parent in the sense that I've read all the theorists that came up with all the culture that is acting out right now on the streets. Okay. So I know the names of the people who came up with a theory that has influenced the activity you see. So I'm not the average parent. I have inoculated, I hope I'm trying to inoculate my children to this by steel man arguing it. So instead of straw man arguing where it's like, these people are nuts. Look, they have blue hair and nose rings. They're crazy and just write them off. I mean, they already think that because they're kids and kids are pretty honest. They're pretty honest at saying this person looks like chaos and they are kind of failing in life. And this person, my parents are like responsible and they get me what I need and they love me. So they know instinctually, like they can see the difference, but as they get older, they start thinking like my parents don't know anything. Right. So I'm trying to inoculate them with steel man. So I'm like, here's the thing, people who seem kind of crazy as you're pointing out, whatever it is that you're seeing and that I might point out to them, they actually mean well. And I used to be them and I used to mean well too. And here's what they mean. They make some good points and let's acknowledge that. And that's really important because if you don't steel man your argument against it, they have all the footwork to do it. And you also have to teach your kids logic and reason. Even if they're in public school, you need to do an at-home tutorial of logic and reason because I didn't know at the time that I was being manipulated emotionally. I didn't know my empathy was being manipulated. You know, I didn't know the arguments they were making were fallacies and they don't, well, you might not know this, but this ideology explicitly goes after logic. And I wonder why. So it goes after logic as a white man's endeavor. It goes after time as a white man's endeavor, math, you name it, anything they hate, they don't want anything to do with. They just call it a white man's endeavor, even though I'm pretty sure it wasn't white men who came up with the idea of time. So these things are just blatant lies. But anyway, I tell them, look, intersectionality, let's think about this. If you are, maybe maybe the average person has seen rioting on TV in black communities, okay? Maybe you don't have a lot of black friends. Maybe you own a business and someone sends in a resume that says, well, you know, LaShonda, something or else. It sounds like a black name. Maybe you're hesitant to hire. This is true. Like these things can happen because you're thinking, are they going to riot in my store? Are they going to be disruptive? Because maybe they maybe they subscribe to this Black Lives Matter movement, which I agree, Black Lives Matter, but maybe the, you know, so people have implicit biases, even if they don't know it, it's true, sometimes we do. And so you have to steel man argue it, you have to say, 
they make some good points. However, do you think that the solution to the point is what they say that it is? Here's what they say the solution is. Here's how that plays out. Do you think this is a good solution? You know, you have to steel man it and say here they're identifying a problem. They might be lying about it a little bit. Let's uh, let's look into that. But some of what they're saying has truth. So here's the solution that they propose. Let's see how that is. Imagine how this plays out or see with our eyes how this is playing out. And do you agree this is a good solution? So especially as your kids are in high school, they have to be able to be thinking about these social issues in a way that is fair and in depth. You know, otherwise I I would say don't send your kids to college. This is a, it's a competing religion. It will tear down any faith just to get a foothold in their moral code. I mean, that's really good. I love what you're saying because like the temptation, if you, we look at things through, you know, the temptations of Satan, he doesn't come saying, oh, I'm going to totally mess your life up and put you in bondage and mental bondage. And ultimately I desire to kill you or use you and leave you in chains. He comes with uh, temptation. Uh, he comes to elicit, to, to tempt you, to seduce you. And some of the things he say might have some validity to it. But then once you slowly or suddenly give yourself to that, that's when you get the bondage, you know, that's when you become, you lose your soul, you lose your, your identity and, and your the way you think. Yeah. So Gracie, uh, I really, really appreciate you take coming on the show today. I really love your heart. I know as a ex-feminist, uh, you probably have an amazing husband. I, I think if if I met him and we hung out together, we'd be friends. We have a lot to talk about. You know, you guys have a, a wonderful marriage, it sounds like. And and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. So what I'd like to do is I'd like you to give uh, the audience the last exhortation, share anything on your heart, and then also uh, let everyone know how you can... Uh, how they can get a hold of you and, uh, and follow you. Okay. Well, if you follow me, it might be kind of creepy because I'm not online very much. Um, I am online. I have an email. I have a website. I have, I have a YouTube channel, but it's not active. So, you know, you can, you can find me at um, embarrassing mom on YouTube. It's kind of a vlog of me leaving the left. So some of my older videos, you'll see a very different person, one who doesn't smile as much one who's a little bit more hesitant to speak freely because I don't know if I'm going to say it right, etc. So you'll see me doing that on there. And then my email address maybe could be posted in the link here with this podcast. Yes, we'll do that. Okay. And yeah, so I would just say, I would say, remember, if you're a a Christian, that this is a spiritual battle that we are in. If you have children who have been kind of, I call it a, a mind virus, have been influenced by this sort of this thing that takes over their brain where you're like, what happened to you? You're not even the same person. And why aren't you speaking to me? I love you. It's tough, right? And I would say, first of all, pray, but I'm sure you do. But second of all, just love them. Don't be the one that cuts off relationships. Don't be the one that pushes them away because the truth is they may, might not always feel the way they feel or talk or think the way they do. And by the grace of God, they won't. So I would say, choose to love them despite, I would also say, don't do anything that's against your conscience because this ideology will tell you to bend the knee or else. And the or else is like, we will have nothing to do with you. So you might have to have no con, they might do no contact for years, but always leave that door open. Always just tell them, I understand why you're feeling the way you do. You you know, you don't agree with it. I understand why you feel the way you do because I understand your ideologies demands on your brain. And I will still love you. And the door is always open if you want to chat. And if, if you want to come back to this conversation, because maybe you don't understand my position clearly, and maybe in the future you'll appreciate my position. So anyway, the door is always open and then pray, you know, every day. That's That's beautiful. Well, Gracie, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show and really like like to give you a big hug. So (laughs) um, let's keep in touch and, and thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me, Michael. Okay. Bye.